produced by Ranting Rhino Productions, Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Right, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you've taken the time to join us on this episode. This is a, a good episode for me because I have some really great questions, but we have more importantly than that, we have some really great guests. And uh, so without further ado, how about we just go around the circle and ha- I'll uh, ask you to introduce yourselves, uh, tell us who you are and which institution uh, you are from. Yeah, so hi, Tim. I'm Erwin DeVries. I'm with Thompson Rivers University for the purposes of this study. Uh, we did look at multiple institutions, and I also teach with Royal Roads University, but I've worked for many years at Thompson Rivers University in open learning, where we develop and deliver online distance learning and open learning, use open learning practices for you know, many thousands of students. And hi, Tim. I'm Michelle Harrison, and I am also at Thompson Rivers University, and I'm a senior instructional designer and assistant professor. And I also work in the Open Learning Division and have been um, doing a lot of work with OER and some research into open educational practices. And I'm Rajiv Jangiani. I'm, you know, being with Owen and Michelle, the true part of my identity is being primed very heavily. So I want to reach back to my previous affiliation uh, in open learning. But uh, I currently serve as the AVP for teaching and learning at Quantum Polytechnic University. Um, I began there as a, as a psychology faculty member before evolving into various administrative roles over the years. So thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have all of you. Thank you again for taking the time to be here. So the purpose of bringing you here is to talk about this um, latest paper that uh, you and your team have put together. Uh, It's entitled, How Are We Doing with Open Education Practice Initiatives? Applying an Institutional Self-Assessment Tool in Five Higher Education Institutions. And given where I'm working right now, this was a a, a nice thing to see it come across my feed. And uh, I read it and I instantly wanted to invite you onto the podcast to to talk more about the paper uh, and even to ask you some personal questions about, well, not personal questions, but to ask you questions for me personally about how we might move forward with uh, open education. Um, So let me first start off by asking this question. Uh, What was the tipping point for all of you coming together and saying, yeah, we, we need to do something like this? Well, I can kick things off. I mean, I think it was the summer of 2019. And I, and I don't know if there was a tipping point as much as a, a catalyzing force in, in the form of our good friend, Tannis Morgan. Uh, she began this work actually independently looking at um, the institution she was at initially, which was the Justice Institute of BC, trying to understand how it had evolved in terms of its open educational practices from 2010 all the way through 2018. And so she was looking at that as, a, as an independent case study before she realized that, you know, she would have benefited from her analysis, would have benefited from a, a broader self-assessment tool that, that could be applied. So it was at ETUG in 2019 that she reached out, spoke with many of us, um, and we began began this work. Um, I mean, so really, I think she deserves uh, the, 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 the major credit for this work. Uh, she drew on a couple of uh, blended learning uh, frameworks to, 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 to begin to draft the framework. Uh, and then, of course, we took it from there. Um, but, you know, she and I remember met at Emily Carr that summer to, to begin to flesh it out um, at 
sort of pilot it. And then of course others started to amend it as well as we, as we determined how it needed to be tweaked a little bit to, to, to really accommodate different institutional contexts and still be valid. So blame Tannis. <laughs> Agree. Yeah. We'll applaud Tannis. That's great. Um, were there any surprises for you as you went through uh, the research and the findings and did all your sifting? Any surprises come out for you? I think I could talk to one surprise and uh, I worked particularly on the policy section. And I think what was surprising was how little formal policy there is at many of the institutions um, and really thinking through what impacts that might have on sustainability. Um, so thinking about what sort of that balance and tension between policy can sometimes interfere with grassroots initiatives, but also without it, I think we can be a little bit vulnerable in our initiatives. So um, I think that was a that was a bit of a surprise about how how we're all doing. We're so far along, but the formal um, let's say structures haven't necessarily been implemented. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Any other surprises? Well, one I could add, and it, it, maybe not a complete surprise, but I think we were all quite taken aback at the extent of the student role potentially within the, uh, you know, the uptake of open educational practices within our institutions. Uh, we, it, it's easy to overlook students as a really important part of the organization because we're all working as employees, faculty, whatever of, of our institutions, and we realize <laughs> these are the people we're doing it for, uh, and. Uh, they work in policy, they have their own culture, they have their own leadership. Um, and these are exactly the kinds of factors that we started exploring as we got into the study. We realized, yes, students bring um, a lot of the same issues and really need to be taken seriously, heard and mentored and uh, uh, seen as uh, a force that can really benefit from a better understanding of and with their advocacy for uh, open education practices, and they have uh, more of an impact, I think, than we realize, and more of a potential impact in the future. Mm -hmm. I quite agree. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think, I don't know if I would call them surprises as much as, as sort of, um, you know, suspicions that were confirmed along the way in some part. I mean, because we work within the same sector, within the same province, but there's tremendous diversity right across the nature of our institutions. Um, and that goes from, from, I mean, the policy question is a good one. In, in some contexts, it was very clear that the most effective policies would be ones that effectively codified existing practice, as opposed to trying to drive things through a policy lens. But whether or not we're talking about individual course level, instructor level control over the, let's say, choice of pedagogy or course materials, or if it's that, or if that's centralized, if you, you know, it, it really affects things. Um, buy-in from from senior leadership really affects things and so i think what was really interesting to see was was how you know there are the myriad pathways that we knew through our own lived experiences as as advocates and practitioners in this space we're really getting um detailed and becoming more explicit through the through the rubric of this framework yeah good were there any previous self-assessment tools that institutions were using? Uh, I, I don't know that people were using them specifically over here. I mean, I remember broadly, yes, there was work in that space. Um, I remember there was a presentation back, 
I wish I could remember the year, maybe 2017, I want to say, at the Open Education Global Conference, where colleagues from the Open University of Sri Lanka had had developed a, a, an assessment tool. But that was more about assessing the impact of OEP within the institution. It wasn't about a self-assessment of capacity or things like that. So I think there was sort of related work that I was aware of. But I, I think the predominant thing that I had seen, certainly, and happy to be corrected over here, was really more of, a, of, of an ideographic sort of case study approach um, from many places, uh, including GI, for example. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And uh, in our literature re review, we did uncover a number of studies as to different potential dimensions of open openness in education, higher higher education. But in terms of a tool to actually uh, engender discussion at the institutional level and using the institution as a as a unit of analysis, uh, that was that was an approach we really wanted to bring to that literature as well as to the insights that we brought to the study. Uh, and you know, to use that micro, meso, macro uh, model that Zwacki, Wichter, and Anderson use for analyzing different levels of research within open education or, or distance education. I think they call it distance open education. Um, I think I think we find that that um, there's kind of a lack of, at least that we could find a lack of research at the organizational level, looking more at the organization at the university as a whole or the institution as a whole uh, beyond individual sectors within that. And that's, uh, that was something that, um, that I think we found really interesting. And that's why we had to step back and kind of take a, a holistic view at our organizations and do some self-reflection because that's a very big amorphous uh, unit of analysis uh, to take on. And, and also, there's uh, definitely a lot of potential for more research in this area at the meso level, uh, at, at the organizational studies level. And we'd love to see a lot more of that, not just in the publications focused on, you know, things like pedagogy and technology and so on, but also um, the research and the, the journals and, and other periodicals that get to senior level administrations, that it becomes an issue that uh, is increasingly um Taken, taken up as a strategic and not just as a random one-off issue for our higher education institutions. I mean, one other thing that comes to mind, I think, is beyond providing um, sort of a snapshot, a descriptive tool, uh, the assessment itself, I think one of the things that's helpful is all of the institutions represented in this study have gone through their own journeys and, and really you know there's been a lot of sweat there's been a lot of blood there's been a lot of labor um, a lot of invisible labor that have gone into um, generating the lessons that are that are reflected in these dimensions you know what are the the ingredients in the recipe even though there are different recipes that are appropriate in different institutional contexts and and so i guess there is a hope uh, that that beyond providing that snapshot, that it can provide a bit of a, of, a, of a guide for institutions that are interested in building this capacity to understand where they might invest, where they might begin, where they might stumble, but, but what they might be alerted to before they, they make the same mistakes that some of us had to make as we were forging this new path. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Rajiv. Thanks for bringing that up. Because I, I often thought as I was reading through uh, your article, and by the way, um, I, as I was coming up with questions for our, our podcast today, you kept answering them in the article. So I'm like, oh, okay, I have to think of some, some more other questions to, to bring. But um, one of the things that comes to mind is, 
when we look at different institutions and, and myself coming from uh, what would be deemed a polytechnic institution and now working with BC campus, one of the things that I often found was just the silo effect, uh, even within an institution and even with the trades background that I have, there were oftentimes just different cultural aspects between different trades, uh, let alone the academic versus vocational, if you want to use the word versus. Um, how do you see some of those walls being uh, dismantled between institutions? Um, because one of the things that stuck out to me was just the, the cultural shift and the transformation that, that I think needs to occur. And, and I think what you addressed in your article, but how, how do we make positive steps in that direction? If we are thinking about silos within the institution, um, just to start there, I think one of the things that um, personally we found is having uh, a working group um, really open that people are um, invited to be a part of. And at TRU specifically, we've seen that really grow over the last few years. So from a you know, thinking about institution, cross institution, I think one of the things is some of the initiatives that BC campus has supported, for example, um, where you get people from different institutions coming together on like similar projects, like developing guides or, um, you know, working on open courses that could be shared across institutions. I think that's a huge piece that I see being really beneficial. Yes, and there's 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 multiple roles that that could take place both inter and intra institutionally, um, and within the institution, we uh, as Michelle said, we 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 found that we work a lot in we call them you know the third spaces that are sort of quasi informal organizational structures that aren't embedded in any policy or anything, but just groups that get together and you know with some leadership from any place it could be from the library, it could be from instructional designers, from interested faculty, the um, educational technology groups, whoever um, it, it gets started. And then from there, it kind of filters out into different, you can filter out into different directions. But as we said earlier, without that emerging policy framework, it just, it, it, it it's difficult for that to get traction in the, in, in the wider picture. But among institutions, uh, certainly within British Columbia, we've been very, uh, you know, privileged to have a lot of funding, almost $6 million here in BC from the provincial government over the last, I don't know, five or six years. We've gotten some, some, some great funding from the Hewlett Foundation through BC campus. Um, so that really helped inject um, kind of almost an incentive for the institution. That's the kind of money that people pay attention to and it, and it, and it gets them going. But still, there still has to be some uh, infrastructure and collaboration. Um, the collaboration outside of the institution and, and let's say around the province, which is, you know, in Canada, higher education is a provincial jurisdiction. So a lot of that collaboration happens uh, at the provincial level. And certainly with a lot of support from BC campus, but you know, the institute instructional designers, librarians, faculty all have different, their own different uh, students have their own um, um, organisms to be able to collaborate amongst themselves. And so that's another layer in this complex matrix uh, that we could pay attention to in terms of inter-institutional collaboration. Yeah, I, I see the impact in, in a few different ways. I mean, the sort of the informal inspiration that's always happening. You know, you see what's happening elsewhere, you learn from them, you hear about it, whether they're talking about it at conferences or elsewhere. 
there's the you know more direct collaborations certainly like at kpu we've worked with colleagues at the justice justice institute when it came to a an oer for criminology project that we knew would be you know best produced through a bit of a, a collaboration and, and then certainly have much more impact um but then of course community in general and and a huge credit to bc campus for for building that so much you know creating that space where we can come together as institutions talk through these issues and and learn from one another but you know, in so many ways, I feel like, and Michelle, I think you spoke to this in terms of the, the working group as well and, and how that's gained such steam. It, typically, these working groups are cross-functional. So, so these are very much cutting across different areas that would normally be fairly siloed. Um, and, and, and I feel like in many ways, open education, even within an institution, is pushing back on the on what the what is fairly traditional um, fear and, and let's say territoriality, right? Even as an instructor, I don't want to share what, what I'm doing in the classroom with somebody else. I don't want to share my materials. I'm afraid that my secret sauce will be stolen. And to some degree, you can, you can scale that up as Owen said, from, from the micro to the meso to the macro level, you know, institutions are highly territorial and can be incredibly competitive. So in some ways, both at the course instructor level, as well as at the institutional level, I feel like the, the, embrace of open education is really, really pushing back against this, this general sense of competition and territoriality. And, and so I, that's certainly my hope, but that's what I've observed. I would just add, can I just add one other thing? Um, thinking about going back to the idea of invisible labor, I think too, you see a lot of um, OER development across institutions with faculty members all getting together to say we need a resource for our students we're going to work together um, on that so we i've seen a lot of projects sort of emerge cross institutionally just through it takes a lot of work to develop a really good quality uh, open educational resource for example and we can work together to do that so what what does what does a good policy or a good successful oer policy look like uh, that came up a few, and I know that there's got to be some smart one sentence answer to that question, <laughs> but, uh, what, what would it look like? Because, you know, I'll just give you some time to think, but I, I look at UBC where they've implanted, uh, OER and OEP into their promotional structure, which is fantastic. And then Rajiv, you, you mentioned it, that there are other institutions that, that don't want to share. Thank you very much. We, we create, we keep, this is what we believe is our competitive edge. How, how does how does a successful policy get built and what's it look like? Well, let me jump in on this. Uh, and we, we had a lot of discussions about it. And it's unfortunate that uh, Christina Hendricks from UBC couldn't make it here. But shout out to Christina who uh, was able to speak to a lot of these things that are happening at UBC, including that particular policy. But I think the thing that one of the things that we found as we kind of delved into a discussion about that was uh, sort of the difference between kind of a mandate to do things versus a permissive policy, like a, a policy that encourages, allows, breaks down the barriers. And generally speaking, the latter is probably a stronger way to do policy. In other words, something that breaks down barriers and enables um, openness to happen. But there are certain areas where, you know, if possible, you know, that um, there are certain things I think that we also found it would be good to, to just have a clear policy on, on uh, when open you know licensing or whatever actually should apply but when you when you start to do that it does become more politicized within the organization we recognize that these things have to be discussed negotiated uh and not just pushed onto the organization either so there's that kind of complexity that again goes back 
into the bigger picture of organizational change and how to effect change effectively, you know, in, in a way that uh, encourages uh, buy-in, participation, engagement, and support. So it becomes a big, it's a good question. And it becomes a really big one. One of the things that comes to mind is focusing policy around maybe recognition um, rather than as men, as Irwin was saying, like you can't mandate, but for example, at TRU, we are slowly in, like every faculty is redoing the promotion and tenure guidelines right now. And so it's encouraged that open um, OER development, open educational practices recognized in each of those documents rather than you must say. So I, I think that's one of the things maybe that's helpful is um, recognizing the value and somehow um, it goes then becomes from grassroots into policy rather than a top down piece. Yeah, I quite agree. I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I do believe that in most contexts, you know, effective policy is one that, that codifies existing practice, but by itself, I don't think policy is going to help you. I mean, it needs to be wedded to the practices, to, to the, to the procedures. And, and even with policy, there's big P policy and there's little P policy. And it's often the little P where, where, where the action really is. Right. So, at KPU, I can point to uh, intellectual property policy, Big P, which which talks about you know encouraging uh, you know working with OER and and of course open access uh, scholarship and open science practices as well. But it doesn't mandate it, right? Because you know a critical part of openness is that agency. And so I do think if you start to sort of mandate thing, that that that's going to be quite problematic. Um, but you know, I think part of what's magical about the policy piece, of course, noting that it needs to reflect your institutional culture, acknowledging where the where the stumbling blocks are. And so to, to Christina's case at UBC, it was the students. It was the AMS, the Alma Mater Society of UBC, whose successful advocacy at Senate led to the change in, in their tenure and promotion policy. That was not a faculty driven policy. It wasn't an admin driven policy. It was a student driven policy. Right now at KPU, it's a very different context. We couldn't give a fig about tenure and promotion because that's not how, how we do things at, at KPU anyway. But for us as a teaching focused institution, what was more and more, more powerful was having a level where, you know, every course that comes up for review every five years or every new course that's developed has to now undergo a search for relevant OER. But even that is not mandating, right? So you can see and you can decide there's nothing available. There's nothing that's relevant. Um, you know, it, the, the choice is always left with the instructor. They are the expert. And so even though it's an institutional um, policy or practice, if you will, it, it's not without agency on the part of, of faculty. So, you know, I, th I think you can look at policy as as one part of of the of the ecosystem that that is helpful particularly in sustaining things where it's not just you know down to the efforts and, and continuity and legacy of a few people who've been driving it and doing the work it helps you know weave it into the fabric of the institution in a way that makes it transition proof for example which is helpful it raises awareness for new people coming to the institution as well which is helpful but you know you can just as easily have a policy that doesn't have any of those surrounding factors that just sits on a shelf like so many dei policies may i say and doesn't have an impact at all at the institution so how do you see the connection between good policy and sustainability because i know you you made a connection with that in in your work here one of the things I think is if you have some of that recognized policy, I think it can help um, with 
encouraging the develop like the allocation of resources. And I know at TRU right now, we're going through a, a leadership transition. We had a very, very supportive uh, provost um, who was providing funding for OER grants. So without um, some recognition necessarily within our formal documents, that possibly could fade away. Um, so there's advocacy happening from our open educational working group right now to continue that kind of funding to support sustainable growth. Um, but I think that wouldn't be as strong if we didn't have some of those um, more formal policies starting to be implemented. Mm-hmm. How, did, uh, how did, how did COVID affect your study? Or did it? <laughs> Just made us use more Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Pragmatically speaking, yeah, you had to, you had to meet through Zoom. But um, I, yeah. specifically, we didn't have to collect data. Right. We didn't have to collect data from the field. So right. we, it was a self-reflective exercise. So we did all of it amongst ourselves. We recorded it and then had it transcribed and analyzed. But um, so it's, I think you could think of it as an early stage study where mm. <clears throat> kind of tried to lay out a, a maybe something of a research map or agenda it's preliminary but you know it, it would be but the, but the whole idea of being that the tool could eventually be used and already is being used <clears throat> the tool that came out of this study for institutions to do their their own more in-depth analysis on their own but at this point we you know we didn't take it to that stage that uh, it would have been too early and so it actually coincided well with the fact that we weren't able to get out and interview people and do things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the one thing for us is, is, you know, we began this process before the pandemic properly hit our, hit our shores. Right. So, so that was helpful in some ways, but, you know, uh, I do want to recognize that it certainly had an impact in terms of our timelines and our ability and the sort of cognitive overhead of, of everything we were trying to juggle. So I imagine it slowed us down a bit, um, as I certainly imagine it did for the editorial staff and the reviewers and everybody else, right? So, you know, I think, but in many ways, given how we've seen not just in BC, but beyond um, the acceleration in the in the adoption of, of OER, let's say, during the pandemic, for reasons as as mundane as supply chain problems with commercial textbooks to, to, to more deeper issues of, you know, acquainting yourself with more invisible barriers that were always there that people got alerted to over, over the pandemic. Um, I mean, I'm glad that it's out there uh, so that folks, you know, who now realize the importance of it more than ever um, have, have a bit more for, of a guide and a tool. Do you think that um, COVID has uh, helped raise awareness of, of OER, OEP uh, initiatives? It's interesting, right? I mean, sure. I'm going to say sure, <laughs> but but I think it's it's one of those events that get, that can really also polarize in many ways. I mean, I think one has to recognize that with open ed, we're often talking about students and the student experience and and, and barriers faced by students, but certainly barriers experienced by educators uh, came into relief just as well over the pandemic. So. You know, I think it's a, it was an understandable reaction at the same time, faced with a loss of so much control of, of your you know usual way of doing things and, and having to learn these new technologies and, and having to change and redesign all of your assessments on all of these other things. I think as a psychologist, it's completely understandable that, that, you know, a good number of faculty would have in fact turned to options that they would have viewed as simpler 
easier out of the box plug and play as a way of managing their own um you know workload quite frankly so you know i, I think the pandemic has brought into relief as i said many inequities and many barriers that were always there that were just perhaps less in less visible to many um so it has certainly on people i will say in my institutional context accelerated the adoption of of open and and helped raise awareness of it but you know i think it's more complicated than that right and and so you know there are, we know for example that there are people who ideologically would want to support open and they they practice doesn't necessarily reflect that or people can adopt open with you know without the ideology or, or carrying the values of open education and they will treat an open textbook you know just the same as they would a commercial textbook without availing of the affordances of open or doing anything like that so i'd be careful to kind of um not always assume that that practice is a reflection of underlying motivation if that helps yeah and i think one other big thing that happened and and, and probably more sort of towards the tail end of when we were completing this study was the, the growth of concerns around proctoring um surveillance proctoring uh as kind of seen as a natural extension of distance online learning which as we know has kind of turned into this monster that's that's uh, causing a lot of you know rightfully causing a lot of concern and um in fact and, and then the need for a better understanding of how that that could transform our practice that there isn't necessarily just a technological solution to every problem that arises through uh, such things as, you know, as a pandemic or, or others. And if we want to become more, you know, um, flexible in the future and able to sustain ourselves through these kinds of things, we need to change some of the ways we do things, including the way we evaluate and assess learning and, and, uh, uh, open education practices has a lot to give to offer in terms of alternative ways of assessing knowledge, sharing knowledge, creating new kinds of assignments um, away from this all or nothing final course exam. So I think, you know, we kind of came in early to something that I think will grow that open educators are going to have to pay more attention to and do research into is how, how does how does um, something like COVID, because it's it has had such a profound effect, actually um, kind of serve as an emblem for the type of resilience that we need to build into our educational systems and, and how uh, open education can be an important part of that. I think the other thing that really came to the fore was the idea of um, the balance of openness as well as privacy um, and our students' privacy, sort of you think about surveillance and, and where education is happening. Um, but I think we need to be particularly aware of ensuring students have choice and Rajiv talked about agency. So um, building that in, I think is really important and keeping that in mind as we um, continue to evolve our practice. I think one of the things I'm grateful for is is even before the pandemic hit, but it's sort of been happening happening concurrently as well. Is you know, I think over the last five years, the open education movement has been maturing, and I know that's been threatening to some folks, and it's viewed as oh, it's divisive and not united. And well, you know, it's a more nuanced discussion now. And so one of the things I love about it now is is, the, is there's a lot more open embrace and and interest in in 
in criticality, which is incredibly helpful, right? If you're, you know, you're not going to necessarily um, spin a very simple or, you know, perhaps simplistic narrative, which, you know, uh, by, by virtue of, of its own nature, overlooks some of the more complicated aspects of the landscape, uh, doesn't, um, doesn't observe some of the more obvious landmines or, or potholes. And so I think that criticality, which, you know, privacy is a big part of it, um, accessibility, um, you know, inclusion, there's a whole, I mean, you look at the work of people like Cheryl, Cheryl Hodgkinson Williams and Henry Trotter um, in their incredible uh, paper about a social justice framework for, for OER is a really good example of, of how, you know, the, the discussion has matured. And so at the same time as we're talking about an awareness of barriers and then the acceleration of OER, I'm really hoping that, 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 you know, what is being, what is inspiring people is not a simplistic, you know, um, adopt an open textbook and the world will be a better place, but it's a much more nuanced discussion about when open is appropriate. And if we're advancing open, how are we doing it? Uh, because you can certainly do harm with the very best of intentions, even with open. One thing I really appreciated about uh, the paper was the systems uh, approach and the, and, and the way that uh, it became very clear to me as I was reading through it, just, there isn't just one solution as, as for all things, there isn't just one thing to hone in on and say, okay, if we just tweak that a little bit, then everything will grow exponentially. Um, but it, it just seems like, you know, with your, with your uh, focuses on advocacy and policy and leadership and, and culture change, um, all of those individually are big things to, to, to try and leverage for change. Now you have all four of these put together. <laughs> it, it might almost seem insurmountable. Uh, and yet I was really encouraged by, uh, the recognition that, that buy-in from senior leadership all the way down to grassroots and even student associations and how different levels of engagement and interests and perspectives can really make all this uh, come together and, and for lack of better term, make something beautiful out of, out of this mess that we're in right now. And, and I, I love the term maturation uh, because even in my own short um, journey into OER and OEP uh, I've seen a maturation in, in my perspective uh, and I, I'm seeing that maturation in the smaller context of which I, I, I run in. Um, one thing that, that I keep thinking about is, how do we bring more people to the table to continue the conversation and not just to continue, but to keep pushing the boundary, to keep, um, to keep our feet to the fire, so to speak, because, you know, I'm not going to speak for anybody uh, here, but I know for me there, there, there comes times where it's like, man, it'd be really nice just to relax. And um, we've done this thing and okay, now it's your turn run with this. Um, but I also know that uh, when I'm held, and I'll use the term if I'm held accountable for the knowledge that I have and encouraged and even sometimes pushed a little bit to, to grow and, and to search out new avenues. That's, that's where I think for me, experientially real growth happens. How do we get more people to the table? One of the things that um, we talked about early on in this study was that we didn't want the tool that we developed and the processes that we you know came across as we put this study together to sort of equi become equivocated with or equivalent to um, benchmarking or a high level of quantification of what's going on within our organization. It almost encourages some form of 
compliance or even dread that, oh, here comes, you know, once a year we have to do this thing, uh, which I think is counterproductive. And we wanted to encourage dialogue and use it to um, to get different parts of the organization broken out of silos and, and use this as a, as a way to have facilitated uh, well-structured conversations uh, and dialogues where people can listen to each other. Uh, so that it's not something to be afraid of or something that becomes a um, kind of a negative experience for people, but that as that agency forms, as the vision develops among different levels and individuals within the organization, they can start to, uh, you know, come on, come on board uh, and make a contribution if, if they feel that they can do that. So I, I think that was an important part was we didn't want a, a rigid, structured, highly mandated process, but just an encouragement of, of dialogue <clears throat> that would have obviously eventually lead to concrete steps like, you know, policies for the longer term. But, but you know, I'd have to agree with you. And I, and I think we all would that um, you can't just force something like this that we have that it's, it, you know, we need to move slowly. Um, you know, maybe move slow and fix things rather than the ed tech uh, mantra of break, move fast and break things. No, we don't want to break things, but we want to challenge and, you know, move forward in a, in, in a caring and, uh, you know, um, compassionate way, I think towards, um, listening, hearing, sharing, uh, and looking for the opportunities when they arise. And I think there's um, sort of recognition that there are roles within institutions that can help sort of provide those small conversations that get people interested, um, that you can show a little bit of value and people will come along slowly and you start with where they are at and, and what the value is. Um, usually focusing on students is the big thing. Um, so just trying to have that little small change, I think is enough at the beginning to get people sort of on board. And then they are like, oh, this is great. Yeah, I think your question speaks to that sustainability issue as well, right? I mean, because, you know, frankly, none of us are, are, are special. I mean, in that, you know, we are not unique in, in caring about students and, and caring about equity, right? So that those values are everywhere. And so, you know, in some sense, I, I think you just have to sort of start with that, with that understanding and, and, you know, think about what the barriers are. Is it, is it that people don't know about this stuff? All right, then we can deal with it in terms of awareness. Uh, is it that they, they know and they care, obviously, but, but there are some other barriers to their participation or even their leadership and, and providing those opportunities, getting out of the way. And, 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 and honestly, it, it hasn't been an issue in, in my institutional context. And I look at, you know, people who've emerged as incredible leaders in the open ed space over the last few years, people like Arlie Crothers and Melissa Ashman and Andrea Nayosi. And, and there's this revolving door of incredible, you know, faculty advocates and student leaders at different institutions. So, you know, I think if it's not obvious where, where, where others are, you're probably just not looking hard enough. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the door needs to be so wide open over here um, that, that, you know, there's a constant need to not just have people sit at this table, but there's a constant stream of new tables being set up all over the place. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time. I have one more question to wrap up and I'd like to hear all three of your perspectives on this last question. Um, how are we doing? How are we doing? 
You know, I mean, I, I, in part, I, I immediately interpret your question as, as sort of a wellness check, quite frankly, given the state of, of things right now. So, you know, how are we doing? I don't know. We're sort of grateful, holding our breath, both at the same time, you know, serving as caretakers, trying to make sure, you know, the communities that we are trying to serve are, are going to make through the, the rest of this, you know, I don't even know how to, how to describe this ongoing experience at this point. But just that that you know we can make sure that that the 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 centering of the human in open education is something that I think reflects all of our approach in in our work anyway, and so I think it's mainly just trying to be mindful of of the people whom we work alongside, who we care for who who we you know are responsible to, so you know, like with everybody else, one day at a time. Yeah, and also in terms of how we're doing, I, I, I think certainly at the early part of the pandemic, <clears throat> we were basically flooded with the challenges and it was more about filling sandbags and, and plugging up the, the leaks as, as much as possible. But in the longer term, filling sandbags is, isn't, isn't good enough and we have to rethink our whole water management just to take this somewhat weak analogy a little further. Um, yeah. Um, so, so I, I think we're at a stage where, you know, it, it, in some ways it's, it's a really good time to be thinking about how can we improve our practices so that when the next flood comes, uh, and, and I mean that both metaphorically and for real, um, that we're in a better position to carry on, uh, because we've thought about you know, the world in that particular way and about how we want to respond to it, break out of our bubble of what we're comfortable with. Um, but recognizing that particularly those who provide the support for all this, these uh, practices and technology, many of them are, are beyond burnt out. Um, just, just like a lot of the medical staff, I think a lot of the, a lot of the caring professions and I think of education as a caring profession, people are exhausted. And, and so, we have to try to keep the burden as light as possible, but still at the same time, have, have that longer term goal in mind. And, and so it's a long game. Open education is a long game. It's not a switch that we flip off and on, but I just want to encourage all my colleagues, all our colleagues throughout, you know, around the world who are, who are doing this thing to, to, to you know, to hang in there, uh, to share this vision and to, you know, we keep supporting each other and moving forward. I would echo everything. People are tired and I think, um, but I think they've, it's been very encouraging to see some really innovative practices come out and people and faculty and colleagues um, embracing um, the learning that's happened. Um, so that this, you know, this January is very, again, it's just the switch. So I think we're a little bit better prepared um, because people had been rethinking through assessments and and the use of OER where possible and the use of technology and those things. So um, yes, we're everybody's really exhausted, um, but I think um, our open practices um, have helped just a little bit. Tim, I know we're we're getting close to the end of of, of the cast, but. I do want to not leave as well without, you know, I know the the voices of three of our co-authors are missing from this podcast. So I certainly wanted to make sure that 
that everybody listening knows who they are and, and knows about their, you know, their incredible work on this. So Tannis Morgan, we've mentioned, um, she's now at the at Vancouver Community College, uh, Elizabeth Childs from Royal Roads University, and Christina Hendricks was also mentioned uh, from, from UBC, of course. And they, in fact, the first three authors uh, of this article. And, and, and of course, you know, without them, none of this would have happened, Tannis in particular. Uh, but uh, I certainly hope that, you know, we've done we've done some of the intellectual labor justice, but um, if you don't know about them, please do go look them up. All of them are doing incredible work individually. Yeah, thank you for that, Rajiv. Um, all your contact information will be available in the show notes uh, with the, the episode, um, as well as a link to the paper. And I would highly recommend uh, everybody go and read this paper uh, and reflect on it a lot. And um, I know that all of you uh, I have followed uh, at various distances, <laughs> virtually, uh, and I appreciate all of your input. And uh, I know that uh, I will go back and reread this article again and again as the weeks and months go by. And and I do too want to echo what was said here that um, there are a lot of people tired, and and a lot of people, uh, if they haven't already, are reaching that stage of of being burnt. And uh, you know, I just want to extend uh, a huge thank you for all the work that they're doing. Uh, because I see, I see a lot of the empathy that is going out towards the students and, uh, that can be taxing. And so, uh, I wish all of you well, uh, not just the three of you here, but the other three authors of the paper, uh, and all of you who are listening, I wish you well in this journey of 2022. And, uh, thanks again, Rajiv, Erwin, Michelle, for taking the time to be with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, I value, uh, everything that you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim, for the invitation. It's great to be here and to chat with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Tim.